This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hi, folks. Welcome to another episode of Film Study. This is Ken McCusick. We're here to con- continue our expectations series where we look at two players, one offensive and one defense. In this case, Ronnie Stanley and Daryl Worley today. And here to do that with me is Michael Crawford. Michael, how you doing? Doing good, Ken. Good to be back. Um, always good to talk ball with you and just catch up and uh, excited to do another one of these. Yeah, always, uh, always a lot of fun. So uh, Ronnie Stanley, now 29 years old. In his eighth season, I think it's an understatement to say he's one of the most important Ravens to keep on the field the entire season. Uh, there is no one behind him. Uh, we, you know, one of the interesting things is to figure out who would play left tackle if Ronnie Stanley couldn't go, which we can try and do, but it's an exercise in how far off the cliff do you have to drop and not uh, is there a cliff there. Yeah, the way I kind of think about it is, and I'm not saying these are the only ways to think about it, but just how I organize it in my head is you can look at it as, do we want to use the shuffle the deck approach where we take a guy who's a current starter like Morgan Moses and move him to left tackle? And then, you know, obviously you got to backfill his spot at right tackle. Or do you want to go with somebody off the bench and, you know, keep everybody else where they are and fill in with, Makari or Falalele or whoever else you think can go over there and play left tackle. So that's that has been the Ravens' way has been to make a one-for-one switch uh, to try and maintain as much continuity on the line as possible. So they clearly value that. Um, but but anyway, obviously, a, a, if Ronnie Stanley's lost, it's going to be a very difficult season. When it happened in twenty-one, it was a disaster. When it happened in twenty, it was a disaster. Uh, you know, it's it destroyed really both of those seasons in terms of, uh, you know, the long range uh, optimism that was, that was there at the start of the season. He's healthy this year. He says coming to, to some of the early activities, uh, you know, he said he feels better than he has in, in recent times. Now you often get that kind of optimism from an athlete, but in Stanley's case, I think he's been a player who's been fairly reserved, fairly conservative, managing expectations about how other people feel about his injury. Yeah, you remember when he came back, right? Last season, you know, Harbs had been pretty cagey about it and had gotten to a point even where there was almost, you know, a, a perception, let me say that, because it's not anything that he said specifically, but towards the end where people were like, well, he's no longer um, – on any kind of injury designation, but he's not practicing and, you know, carbs gets to the, well, you're going to have to ask him. Right. And then Ronnie comes out at some point and says, well, it was more than just that one injury that, you know, had been reported. There was some other compensation stuff that was going on that people, you know, didn't know about. Um, to, to your point, I don't think that that's something he does regularly. 
Mm -hmm. uh, but I think he felt like the narrative had started to kind of shift on that a little bit. And he wanted, you know, to kind of push back on it. And, you know, just the fact that he's not recovering from anything this offseason, right? Not having to actually rehab something where he can just kind of go through quote unquote normal offseason. I think that that's big. It does see it is big. Um, there, there probably is still rehabbing going on based on a what we've heard and b some of the still of what is missing from his game as recently as last year. Mm-hmm. So I think that we, you know we'll, we'll talk about that and maybe maybe we move on from the injuries here because I think we can go back and forth a little yeah. bit on injuries. I do completely agree with you though that um, I think that's something that that dialogue needs to be had between Harbaugh, who is trying to protect the team's interest in terms of what's going on with injuries to not give anything away to opponents. Oh, yeah, everybody's healthy. We're ready to go. You know, is his going to be his standard response to everything? And the way that naturally throws shade on individual players when they then are not ready to go. And that's, that's, that's I'm sure it is extremely frustrating to players. And if Harbaugh wants to be a player's coach to the to the greatest possible degree, then he he won't do that crap <laughs> and he'll he'll uh uh basically say we're not going to discuss injuries and have that be no comment be his only comment with regard to injury on all on all cases i i'm much more comfortable by the way if injury questions are completely off the table in any kind of uh you know interview situation in camp yeah i think you and i've talked about this before right it's the bill belichick approach mm-hmm. like i'm just not going to talk about it i'm not going to say anything about it and harbs you know, he'll make these statements about it and, you know, sort of give off the cuff predictions about <laughs> what he thinks is happening or how long or the severity. And then when it doesn't pan out and reporters naturally follow up with him about the things that he said, he gets angry. And yeah, he then he more. says, I'm not going to say anything about injuries anymore. And he'll do that for a little while. But then he goes back into the same behavior. So you just like him to pick that one approach and say, hey, I'm just the, the approach that you mentioned specifically, mm-hmm. make sure I'm being clear on that. I'm just not going to talk about injuries, guys. Period. That's right. So, so one of the things in the world of finance, if you're under NDA, this also comes up. Or if you're uh, you know, in acquisition talks with somebody is a, is a common place. This is an issue is no comment is your only comment. And you're, yeah. you're, you're told about that. Are are you guys in talks to buy? I have no comment. You, and and it, it means that's supposed to be your your answer, regardless of the situation. It's got like the Navy. I, we can either confirm nor deny the presence of these weapons, yep. you know, kind of thing. Uh, it's it's a it, it would just be the easiest way. And it's I know it would be frustrating because a lot of what the the press wants to ask about is injuries. Mm-hmm. But you know what? There's a, there's a tremendous paucity of actual football questions. At at uh, at media things that where there's a there's a wealth of knowledge to take advantage of there, and in particular, even if Harbaugh doesn't like to talk about the Ravens scheme, ask Harbaugh to talk about the other team scheme. Sometimes he's great at it. Yeah, he's unbelievable. He'll go into great detail on that. Yeah, and you know, I I just I'd like to just see good. that that change. There's plenty of other things to talk about. <laughs> I like you said. I understand the you know why the injury questions are asked. Obviously, they're super important. But, you know, just for the position that he's sort of painted himself in in the last few years with these injuries and trying to respond to certain questions. And then, you know, obviously there's been probably some cases where 
internally he's frustrated with where he thinks maybe a player should be and sure. what they should be doing and then having to get in front of a microphone and keep a lid on that internal frustration when you're being asked directly about it repeatedly daily uh just don't put yourself in that position you yeah. know and no comment can do that yeah and it's it uh and if you do it enough times and if it becomes even an angry no comment as long as you're consistent in your no comment um it's the kind of thing that um certain reporters who like to ask injury questions or here's an example i can think of but i but i won't name it by name certain reporters who like to ask injury questions will will get the hint and they won't keep doing it yeah. uh even if it's if if it's important to you if if they did but anyway let's move on okay. ronnie stanley big crossroads season this year because next year is really the first time the ravens have a chance to unwind the contract if they want to uh, I don't think they will. It's about an $8.3 million cap savings. They certainly won't get a good left tackle for that kind of money. Yeah. It would have to be paired up with some play that drops significantly from where he was this last year. Yeah, and from what we saw when he came back last year, um, I didn't see any indication that he was trending in that direction. He certainly wasn't, you know, sort of prime Ronnie Stanley, and he's talked about that, you know, mm -hmm. I, I think when he had some media availability. Back during the early camps and uh, OTAs, you know, he talked about how he thought it was solid. You know, he would kind of rate his performance coming back last year as solid, certainly not where he thinks he can be. And of course, he's going to say, and he did say, I'm confident that I can get back to that level. I mean, what else is he supposed to say? Mm -hmm. I don't know if he'll get back to that level or not, because, you know, there's there's mitigating factors. There's the injury history. There's age, you know, all these things that degrade any, you know, player. But even what we saw last year, Maybe, you know, one tick above that, if I'm being optimistic. But even if we get what we saw last year, mm -hmm. that's going to be very good uh, yeah. <laughs> in terms of, of of this offensive line and, you know, what his performance brings to the overall line and, and the offense. Yeah, a lot, lot of value just from that. You're absolutely right. And as I scored it last year, I'll remind people that my scoring system is heavily weighted towards pass blocking because – Pass blocking events have much more severity to them when they occur. And Ronnie Stanley does not allow many of the bad pass blocking events. So very unusual for him to give up a sack or a quarterback hit. He mirrors extremely well. And his natural style is to give ground while maintaining his mirror. The sacrifice he'll make is giving ground while maintaining his mirror. And then Jackson has been exceptionally good at working with that and escaping uh, trouble when he feels that blindside uh, nearness of Roddy Stanley and his opponent uh, uh, there, but he's been very good about about avoiding that. Where he he wasn't as good last year is as a run blocker, and fortunately that's the less important thing by far as a left tackle. But what was really surprising is how difficult it was for him to get out in front of run plays the way he had in the past. And I want you to kind of speak to that, Michael. I thought you were the perfect person to have on for Ronnie Stanley because I know you chart all the run game, run game mm -hmm. plays. And yeah, no, no, go, go ahead, go ahead. I, I, I just I thought you were going to start, but, but yeah. The, the, so the question is this: we we saw Morgan Moses, particularly on the backside of two man poles, uh, doing an amazing job of following that initial player and getting to a block himself, whereas Stanley. Um, he got a lot more courtesy blocks in my system because you don't actually have to make a block. If you're the second man on the counter, you just have to move. You're much more of a decoy player under those circumstances. 
but uh, you know Moses was going and, and finding bodies to hit and destroying them. He looked like the more mobile of the two tackles in terms of that the the counterplay. Yeah, you just have to wonder how much what he's had happened to his ankle, and then you know some of the compensatory effects from that um, affect his mobility. Now he's still one of the more athletic tackles in the league, but you know we remember what he was at his best. And, you know, if if not number one, <laughs> maybe number right. two in terms of most athletic tackles in the league. Um, he he hardly ever missed blocks in my system. And, and I, you know, you can confirm this from your own old, old run blocking scoring as, or run blocking charting anyway, is that he's one of the few tackles who on the back side of run play. So it means the run plays go into the right and he's on the left side. He can still get out into level two and level three and help you make a block. If you're Bryant McKinney in that situation, you're just watching that play. Yeah, good luck. Yeah, good luck. Yeah, being able to execute that backside cutoff. So if you can visualize mm-hmm. this, like you just sort of laid out, if the run's going away from you, let's say it's going to the right, and Ronnie Stanley would ideally want to get one of the inside linebackers, probably the backside inside linebacker, right? Because the play side guys are going to be flowing too fast. It's going to be hard to get those guys. But if you can get that backside inside linebacker and cut him off, basically take an angle, could be 45 degrees, could be whatever. It's the angles, whatever it needs to be to cut that guy off and sort of force him to have to deal with you as he's pursuing the run from the backside. Now, obviously the stuff they do with Lamar and the mesh and all of that helps, but there were times where it's just a straight handoff on a play on a run play going away or wide zone, you know, a pitch, whatever. And he's getting to that linebacker. There's not a lot of tackles who can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so uh, he was really good at that in his prime. Um, but yeah, you definitely noticed some limitations in terms of mobility last year that you hadn't seen, you know, when he was at his best in the past, Moses, you bring him up. I was mm-hmm. surprised. And, I felt like I watched a fair amount of his Jets film before yeah. he came to the Ravens. Different player. Like, okay. Yeah. I just like, I didn't see this level of mobility yeah. uh, over there. Now, some of that is scheme. Maybe they weren't doing as much pull stuff with him with the Jets as the Ravens end up doing. So maybe he didn't have an opportunity to showcase it as much. But even in the instances where I saw it, because not like they didn't do any of it, they did some. Even in the instances where I saw it, I just didn't see the same guy. I was like, this guy last year, this guy is super mobile. Um, for a guy his size. So that was really impressive. But yeah, Ronnie, you know, I think what's probably going to have to happen, and I think Ronnie just, you know, my perception, obviously I don't know him personally, but when you listen to him speak, seems like a really heady guy, really kind of introspective, you know, certainly high football IQ. It's going to become even more. I think he's already kind of been a technician throughout his career. I wouldn't certainly label him as just like you know, getting by on pure athleticism, even though that was, you know, an important part of his game. Obviously, he's he's gifted. But I think he's going to become even more reliant on technique and angles in particular, and then maybe even having to do some of the things that you see, you know, some of the craftier, you know, tackles, you know, do guys who are maybe a, a year or two or three years older than him. A guy like Teron Armstead is a guy I think of a lot. Teron does a lot of things that, help him. I mean, obviously he was a, a physically gifted guy too, and, and still has some of those gifts, but he's, you know, he's, he's getting up there in years, but you know, he, he talked about something on a podcast. It was a year or two ago. I think he was on with Brandon Thorne and he was talking about a pass protection technique or what you would generally use in pass protection that he thought he could use on a run block on the backside of run mm-hmm. plays to allow him to make some of those cutoff blocks 
that we were just talking about. And he was saying that he really hadn't seen anybody else do it in the league. And uh, I guess when they do the O-line masterminds summit that Duke Miniweather, who's done for a couple of years and all the offensive linemen get together in Texas, he showed a couple of guys where he had actually done it on film a couple of times. <laughs> and it's basically uh, the old snatch and trap move that you see mm-hmm. in pass pro when guys bull rush and they kind of get their arms extended and their weight get you know, defensive guys, their weight gets a little bit too far out front mm-hmm. and the tackle basically just chops down on their arms and the momentum kind of knocks them down. He thought you could do that on run plays because he's like, look, this guy is going to engage you. It's basically going to be like a bull rush in a sense when he's locked out and his weight's forward, I'm just going to trap him and throw him down. And now I can deal with him and I might even be able to get up to a, another defender. So it was a pretty interesting use of that technique. I don't have a ton of clips of it. I think I've got like one or two where he actually did it. I'm saying all of that just as an example of maybe some of the things Ronnie might start to incorporate when you know even he yeah. probably has come to the realization that I might not be able to do everything athletically I used to do. So, you know, there's something to keep an eye on. The the athleticism to mirror is going to be the most important part of his game. But I, I will say there's more craft to his game as a run blocker as well. Um, he has a way of deking a defensive end or a, or even a 4-3 a, a outside line, 3-4 outside linebacker, I should say, um, into into thinking it's a pass rush snap. Yeah. And sometimes, uh, you know, trapping trapping a player that way. Uh, he's just he's got more craftiness to his game than than, uh, uh, you know, he did when he came into the league anyway. And I think, uh, you know, than most of the tackles in the league do. It's a good thing because obviously there's some other things that are not quite right. Um, one thing I'll say what was very good about this last season is that he was not penalized a lot. He had 671 snaps um, and those included the penalties. So it's a PFF snap total there. And he had the lowest rate of penalties of any of the 57 tackles who played at least 50% of the snaps. So the average rate was approximately 7.7% of snaps you're penalized. And he was uh, one fifth of that point, uh, 0.149%. He was, he was penalized. So uh, exceptionally good at that. It's not something he's been great at his whole career and particularly his rookie year. He had a number of holding calls, uh, four in one game against the Steelers and and uh, had a pretty pretty high penalty total in that year. But uh, it's something definitely has improved on uh, over the years and, and, and got a lot better at. And sometimes that's something you see if that number goes up, particularly with like holding calls, mm-hmm. when guys are having to compensate for things, you know, because they're not able to do some of the things they used to be able to do physically. Maybe they've lost a step in, you know, whatever – physical attribute or aspect you you know you want to look at maybe it's mobility maybe it's strength you know whatever that is um but the fact that he's not having that happen you know that's uh, you know a bit of an encouraging sign and then just experience over time i mean you just learn how to do things better you learn how to get Mm -hmm. away with certain things (laughs) you know um obviously when to release on a run play big time Exactly. And and obviously he, he they play different positions, but he was around, you know, one of the best of all time. And Marshall Yonda, you know, you're going to soak up a bunch of knowledge from a guy like him. Even though you play different positions, there are going to be certain blocks and certain techniques that are going to have carryover from position to position. And, you know, if that's somebody who you've had the ability to learn from as a young player. And sometimes I don't know that it. It sinks in when you're when you're super young. Like they're expl- the vet's explaining things to you. He's showing you things. You're like, yeah, yeah, I got it. I got it. I got it. And you get in the game and you don't really got it. 
<laughs> it just takes time and reps and experience. And then it kind of starts to click and it's kind of like, oh, okay, this is what he meant. Okay, this is when you do this. Okay, this is where you put your hand. And if this happens, you refit it and stick it in here and the rep won't see it and they won't call that a hole. I think it starts to, you know, just sort of sink in a little mm -hmm. bit more with more time and experience. I wanted to ask you one other thing from your charting of the game to see if you'd notice this is Ronnie, you know, I, I, I'm watching him be clearly slower, clearly not as mobile on counter plays as Moses is. And one of the questions that comes to mind is, is it not just the injury, but is he somehow managing effort differently? Um, and, and I don't mean to, to say he's taking plays off or whatever, but, you know, maybe he knows he's more likely to be a decoy on the play. He knows that every time he plants and turns up field and whatnot is a, is a risk on that ankle, uh, that he's, that he's going to just take it easier and be a little safer, make sure he doesn't trip over anyone, make sure he doesn't fall anyone's legs in the back in the pit there. Um, I, I just, I wonder if there's an effort and, and injury management component to that. I mean, I think it's a fair question to ask. I mean, I, I, I think what I would be comfortable in saying is that there's definitely a mental adjustment to returning mm -hmm. from injury, not just a physical adjustment. So sort of getting yourself back to that confidence level of where I can do everything that I need to do, not just the things that I've worked on and planned to do, but even more reactionary stuff where there's something that's happening that I got to react to um, mid play without thinking about it without having that slightest bit of hesitation in my mind that I don't know if I can put my full weight on my ankle. I don't know if I can plant and make this cut. I don't know if I can stop and drop my anchor. You know, I, I, all of those things, right, that I think are only natural to go through a player's head when you've been through what he's been through and, you know, you've kind of had some fits and starts, you know, in, in the past before you were able to kind of really get back out there on a, on a regular basis. So, I would I wouldn't be uncomfortable saying that that maybe there is a mental uh, there was a mental element to it last season that just you know trying to get back to fully trusting you know uh those parts of his body and and just you know being able to um comfortably ask them to do the things that they need to do and it's a totally different player different position everything but Marcus Peters talked about that last year just, mm -hmm. just not having total comfort and confidence in his, I think it was a knee with him. Yeah, that's um, that's often cited. I would say yeah. with injuries, you just got to. It's part of it's getting over the injury. The other part is getting the confidence to to really plant and dig and move the way you yeah. used to. And some of it could be the management part that you're talking about too. It might not just be the mental the mental part. It could it could be a, a more physical management thing that hey, I need to, you know, kind of be smarter basically about how I approach some of these things and how I do some of these things. And then there are going to be moments in games where you just, you know, it's balls to the wall. You just cut it loose, <laughs> but maybe, you know, when, when I'm not necessarily in those situations, maybe I do take a little bit more of a managed approach where I can, I, you know, you can spin that either way. You know, people can hear that and ah, that's crap. I don't want to hear that. I mean, I think some of that is smart, you know, as players get older sure. and their, their bodies change and they have to, you know, play the game, you know, slightly differently to, make sure they can get through games healthy and do all the things that they need to do. I actually think it would be smart, you know, if that's something they're consciously doing. I got to think some some of them are. Right. I, I I mean, Randy Moss has been one who was accused of taking plays off in the past. And I think, you know, a, a lot of NFL wide receivers do it. You know, and if their number really isn't part of the initial read sequence, that they're, they're 
you know, taking it easy on their route. They want to run their route. They just want to run it maybe a little slower than they normally do, half a tick slower. And um, you know, the unfortunate thing about that is if you had tap outs, sometimes you can have tap outs, by the way, but if the team's running no huddle, they can't have you tap out. They'd probably rather have you take the playoff. Yeah. You know, and, and the thing, but you're, but if you, if you're, if you want to get fresh receivers in to continue to tire those defensive backs, you can also do that because defensive backs generally are not changing. They certainly are not changing on a play by play basis. They may change on a, on a by series basis, but uh, I think the old Baylor wide receivers college football team back in the day were like the most extreme example of that. Like the guys yeah. that were away from the primary read, they weren't running at all. They just didn't yeah. run. It's not I'm jogging or I'm kind of half-assing my route. It's no, I'm not running. <laughs> and the coaches were fine with that because they said, look, we're running like 100 plays on mm-hmm. offense. And a lot of them were pass plays. And these guys are running a lot of routes and a lot of vertical routes down the field. So, look, if it's not your time, hey, throttle it down. We're, we're going to need you when it is your number, you know, when we do call your number. Now that right. you don't see that in a lot of other places, not to that extreme. But, no, hey, I, I get it. I mean, that was that was their approach there. <laughs> The uh, Houston beating SMU 95-21. I don't remember how well you uh, remember that game, but happened, I think, in the late 80s, early 90s. And uh, it, was a, it was a famous coach who was on the losing side of this. And, and he was, you know, he was all hellfire after the game. But um, what he complained about was that Houston and Demarcus Ware was the quarterback at the point. I think it, it might have been. Klingler might have even been the second oh, quarterback okay. that came yeah. in, but it was it was it was somebody else. But you know, Dorcas Ware was the was the guy who started the game, and he had 771 yards passing in that game, and then he got pulled, and somebody else came in and had 200 yards passing or something. <laughs> but anyway, you, you, Houston had a 95 to 21 win, and they were the first Division One team ever to um, gain 1,000 yards of offense in a in a college game. So what they what they did is they kept rotating in receivers the entire game. And obviously, you know, Houston, first of all, has tremendous depth. And SMU at the time was just coming off the death penalty. So everybody was either a sophomore or a freshman and they were having to rotate through their guys and, you know, try and keep fresh bodies on the field. But they were down to their last couple of defensive backs, I think, as well. Or, you know, they they might have had one extra or whatever, but they, but they they were down low in defensive backs and, you know, they just couldn't couldn't keep up with the SMU guys or sorry, the, uh, the Houston guys and uh, ugly game. I, I don't have all the details about that, but I, but I, I, every so often, like once a year, I have a craving to go back and like, look at the statistics from that game and just how ridiculous it was. But, uh, uh, but anyway, kind of a cool one. Yeah. We won't, uh, it, it didn't have that kind of lopsided score, not that lopsided, but I guess when we get into Daryl Worley a little bit, you can think back to that 2021 Bengals game. Yeah. In terms of not having, yeah, yeah, not having uh, corners (laughs) because they went into that game, you know, there's no Marlon, there's no Marcus Peters. I think Anthony Afer gets hurt in that game. I mean, you know, you got Tavon Young, the shell of what Tavon Young was at that time. And it was, uh, I call that one the knife to a gunfight game. (laughs) It was, it was, that was a game very much a, underscore some of the bad blood that the Bengals have for the Ravens. And I think it's pretty, pretty one-sided, frankly. And even though the the, the Bengals had some good years, they've never had, you know, prior to the last couple of years, any good runs of playoff success. Yeah. And that Uh, was also the, um, that was the wink quote, right? Before that game, no, let's not put a gold jacket on him yet. Wasn't, wasn't that? <laughs> and then he threw <laughs> he for 525. Yeah. yeah, he clearly remembered that because he yeah. got asked about it in their media availability after the game. And I think he said something like, hey, what was the score? A lot to a little? <laughs> you know, something. He's a real smug kind of guy. I mean, yeah. I, I I get it. 
you know, he's obviously very good. He's very talented, but he's, he's super smug. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see how quickly his noodly arm goes away because his, his arm strength is, is his big weakness. Yeah. And if, if, if you're, if you're limited in that way, a lot of things are going to start going wrong in a hurry, probably at some point. So, uh, you know, he's, he's a great quarterback. I hope he gets the biggest contract in NFL history by a wide margin. I hope by the end of it, the Bengals are really regretting it. That's the, <laughs> that's my hope for, for Joe Burrow's future. Well, yeah. We're Ravens fans. So yeah, I mean, look, we're not wishing anything, you know, negative on the guy, like from, you know, getting hurt or anything. There's nothing like that. Yeah, just a complete loss of effectiveness. So we want he, them to suck. can no longer <laughs> make a living at this game. Yeah. Yeah. We want them to suck. Okay, let's talk about Ronnie Stanley's pass block, and we'll pull it back in for these multiple rabbit holes to be going down, Michael. <laughs> now, you're the one who told me we had to get us up. I know, and I never listen. <laughs> so in terms of pass blocking, I, I, I talked a little bit about that. It really remains the foundation of Ronnie Stanley's value. I use a three-second standard, different from the PFF two-and-a-half, so I'll give you my totals for pressure, quarterback hits, and sacks. But 19.5 pressures, two-thirds of a quarterback hit the whole year. He had, I think, two one-third instances was what he had and that is really good for an entire season to allow your quarterback only to be hit that that much or be responsible for that much of those events and 3.0 sacks uh half sack in the playoffs two and a half during the regular season which isn't too terrible either uh, certainly for a left tackle um two of his three sacks came in the final two games versus cincinnati so a lot of hendrickson giving him trouble over there on that side yeah that bull rush um, that's, you know, I think where he has issues, not to say that he can't, you know, be beat by other moves, but I think that's kind of the primary move because of what mm -hmm. you mentioned, that's just sort of, in addition to coming back off the ankle, that's sort of been his approach, uh, to how he wants to, you know, handle that particular kind of pass rush, right? He's going to give some ground. You're always going to give a little bit of ground, but, um, he's much better against basically all the other types of pass rush moves, right? Things that require you to, um, have mobility to sort of get to your spot and, you know, set up and, and basically give the rusher only one way to go, right. Instead of a two way go. Mm -hmm. I think Mitchell Schwartz mentioned this on a podcast once old, you know, not, Oh, I shouldn't say old. It was only a couple of years ago when he was still playing for the chiefs there a long time. Good right tackle. He said, if you think about it, um, defensive players, pass rushers in particular, everything that they're coaching trained to do is to force you as a, as a pass protector into a mistake and then capitalize on that mistake. Yep. And he is as simple as this sound. He basically says, if you don't make any mistakes, it's very hard for you to lose. Reps. <laughs> of course that, that sounds, you know, it's easier said than done, but basically you see that a lot with Ronnie Stanley, you know, he gets out of his stance really well. He gets to his spot in terms of where he wants to be, um, you know, based on whatever the particular protection call is and the rusher that he's going against. Obviously he studied these guys and, and prepared for the things that he thinks he's going to get from them. And if he can get out of his stance, if he can get to where he wants to be, you know, work independent hands, if that's what it calls for, kind of mix up his strikes. Sometimes mm -hmm. he might, you know, shoot both hands, hit you with an old school double under. Other times he might kind of give that reverse ghost move, right? You see defensive guys use the ghost move where they stick the hand out, then pull it back and dip. Offensive guys do that too. Well, they'll act like they're going to punch, but then they pull their outside hand back. You shoot your your hand or, or, you know, basically play your card in terms of your move as a pass rusher. And they're like, ah, I got you. And now they can put that hand where they want to put it. So he does all of those things. And just I think the point that you made earlier, you know, if you really had to distill it down, that's that's probably it in a nutshell is just his ability to mirror guys. He can mirror guys. He stays in front of them. And um, 
you can hear old school offensive line coaches talk about all the time. If you can stay in between that guy and the ball, you got a really good chance to block guys. There you go. And and the, the other component is how Lamar and he are so synergistic. And they, they only played together for six games this last year, which is is kind of bothersome that, that uh, you know, Lamar uh, was out a lot at the end of the season. And obviously Ronnie missed some of the beginning of the season. And uh, in the six games together, only one third of a sack and one third of a quarterback hit allowed. So uh, that's really good. And if I were to pick, like, what's the what's the thing that I really like about Ronnie Stanley's record from 2022? That would be it. Is that uh, still seems to have that that great synergy with Lamar in terms of, uh, and a lot of this is Lamar knowing that he will feel that pressure before he feels the hit. Yeah. In terms of being able to get out of there and and uh, and make a move, and Lamar also, of all quarterbacks in the league, is one of the greats at feeling that pressure and then doing ungodly things to get away from it. Just <laughs> yeah. just uh, you know, somebody we saw it in the Arizona game week two of nineteen, sorry two thousand nineteen. I recall any number of times, might have been as many as three times in that game where he reversed out to his left to avoid pressure that was occurring on that left side and ran for positive yardage. And it's just, you know, avoiding sacks in that way, very unusual. Cause first of all, right-handed quarterbacks don't want to be flushed left. You know, it's, it's usually very bad, but you know, for whatever reason, I guess maybe they talked about it beforehand. Maybe they, you know, Roddy said that, look, this guy's going to get pressure. Um, let me see if I can, if I can kind of bait him to the inside. So when you feel it, you know, you you break left and go. I, I I just wonder if they if that kind of discussion happened ahead of the game. Yeah, you never know uh, if guys are sort of pre-planning some of these things. Both guys really, like I said, high high football IQ. But you know, Lamar. You know, we all know what kind of just rare, super rare athlete he is. Um, you can think back. I can think back to times even at Louisville, and it's carried forward through the NFL, where you know, technically, you know, by sort of textbook way of looking at some of the the things that he does and reactions to certain things you'd say ah that's actually not the way you would coach it but he's such a freak athlete it doesn't matter <laughs> it just mm -hmm. doesn't matter you'll see plays where it's like that where he's avoiding pressure and getting out of you know potential sacks and getting positive yardage or making throws you'll see things in the run game where you're like oh he missed the read he should have handed it off or he should have but he's still making you know crazy plays well you've got that level of athleticism um you know, the world is, is just your oyster uh, in terms of the ability to do those kinds of off schedule things. So let's talk about 2023 for Ronnie Stanley here. And and what do you want to see from him maybe at a slightly higher level or maybe at the same level? Or what do you want to see before we get into a good and great season? Any, any like general things that you'd like to see? Well, we talked about, you know, sort of where he was at in the run game. I kind of want to know if it if, if it's possible for us to know it. Maybe maybe it won't be, but was that related to something mental, some sort of management thing? You know that you talked about something physical, and and will we see more of a return to form as a run blocker, or is this going to become the new norm? Mm -hmm. And you know he's going to have to compensate in some different ways to you know execute the blocks he needs to execute now, where maybe he didn't have to make those kinds of compensations in the past. So um, that's definitely something I'll be keeping an eye on to, to see if I can get a gauge on, you know, if it's the new norm or was kind of just, you know, part of the transitioning back last year. Pass pro, you know, I, 
I don't know. I don't know that there's anything significant that I feel like, okay, I'd really like to see him do this. or I'd really like to see him do that. You might be able to speak to that better than me, but the run game thing is really something I'm curious about because if it's the new norm, okay, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but you just have to kind of readjust your expectations. I, you know, the, you, you make a really good point there about his pass blocking is, is, is he that much worse than he ever was? A lot of it has to do, I believe, with quarterbacks who are not particularly pocket aware, and that's going to be true with anybody but Lamar Jackson. No. So that, that currently plays or or recently has played for the Ravens. So Huntley has limited pocket awareness. It's one of his weaker traits. Um, Anthony Brown had real problems with that and is not mobile either. Uh, and and Josh Johnson, I guess, came in and played a game, and he might be a little better than either of those, but he ain't no Lamar Jackson because nobody is. And so so what I would what I would just say about that is that um, he's not too far off his highest level of play. And some of the things we're seeing in terms of um, additional pressures that don't get run out of are probably a factor of Lamar Jackson, not, not being there for him uh, in the pocket. I think if they're playing together, um, he stands a fairly good chance to be near his level. By the way, if you look at his PFF pass blocking score, you notice it's somewhat below where it was in 2019. That's to be expected for a couple of reasons. One is he's probably just not quite as healthy. I'll give you three reasons. Two is playing with lesser quarterbacks. Mm-hmm. And number three is that um, he does not have the total number of pass blocking snaps as he did in 2019. So the more, if you're playing, if you're a plus pass, pass blocker, the more you get, the more aggregation towards a much higher score you get. It's one of the kind of the hard things to figure out about the PFF scoring. But if you use the system way back in the past when they had the plus twos and the minus twos and you could see it all out there in terms of a cumulative score, you get a better idea of what I'm talking about. It, it's like it it validates your um, performance and there's less of a regression to a mean is I guess how I would term it, or it validates your performance such that by the number of snaps, your variance is lower and it can say, your performance is X number of standard deviations from the mean, which is greater the more you have total number of snaps. There are some math people out there who will actually get that. I know I do a good job of explaining <laughs> yeah, it's it right like now. staring at the screen. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that, buddy. <laughs> but, but, uh, uh, but anyway, you, 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 with, with more snaps, you, you reduce your, uh, your standard deviation. So, uh, hopefully, uh, he would, uh, um, you know, with a, with a Monken offense where, he might be there the whole season and Lamar might be there the whole season. And let's say he ends up getting 50% more uh, pass blocking snaps for that. He should look a lot better in terms of his PFF score. I think he will he'll be not maybe quite at the level he was in 2019, but hopefully he won't be far away. You've got more insight. This is my opinion to PFF scoring outside of people who actually work for PFF. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's largely a black box to me, but you tend to have a lot of insight into how they do what they do and, you know, I don't I want to say they're that. not. We've had a lot of conversations over the years, so it's okay. it's it's not all. You know, I just know it. I just happen to have you know had it explained to me and whatnot. I don't want to say they're not forthcoming because I think some of their guys are even even on Twitter. Even if you're not doing like a one on one and DM, Gordon's you know pretty open to mm-hmm. kind of discussing that stuff too. But I get it. There's a proprietary nature to it, and they're they're not going to talk about certain things openly. I I understand that. I, I you know credibility of the system is very important. And I've always been extraordinarily happy with the way they've been responsive to me. They've, they've certainly answered questions whenever I asked Ben Stockwell. Uh, you know, Hornsby is a guy I talked to right when he was starting the company. 
Mm. Uh, we had some late night conversations because, you know, he's five hours time difference. But, yeah. uh, you know, it's it, it, that always went well. But the other thing that's really been well in the Eric Eager era, mm. not only has Eric been on the show and done it, but he's always encouraged his other people, his interns, uh, Timo Riska, um, uh, Brad Spielberger. Now, I don't want to name drop all of this, but I'm just telling you that the PFF people are great at being responsive and really digging into their methodology a little bit. And particularly when it's not a grading methodology by play where there's a proprietary nature to it and they're talking about cap or they're talking about something else they're looking at on a one-off basis, yeah. they're perfectly happy to talk about it. Yeah, the analytic stuff, yeah. They'll, yeah. And, and Brad is... He might be He's the very best good. out there when it comes to the caps. I mean, no, look for me for my money for the Ravens. Brian is is the guy, but uh, mm -hmm. just you know, league wide, you Brad, very very good. Yeah, I, I I agree. He did he did a show with us really recently that has not come out yet. Is still going to post, folks, um, on the the three year cap health of the Ravens. I really want people to take a listen to that. It's some very sobering news about where the Ravens are. And it's a great methodology that he's put together. So it's, uh, it's, it, I think it should be a very popular show, but we'll see uh, if people really want to listen to that. Looking forward to that. All right. So let's talk about what's a good season and a great season for Ronnie Stanley. Uh, and, and you go good, I'll go good, then great, great. So we don't kind of conclude over, over each other. All right. I'm going to keep it simple because I know that you put sort of more into these and, <laughs> and my, my mind is just, you know, for whatever reason, it's really hard for me to do these. I don't know why we've done these shows at least for the last two years where I've done like one yeah. or two of them. And I always struggle with this part, but to me, like the real simple thing is, and I, I guess this would be in the great category more than the good. So I'm already messing it up, but just availability. You know what I mean? If he can start and not just start, but complete <laughs> a full seasons worth of games. I mean, that's huge, right? That is at maybe, maybe that's good. Maybe that's not, maybe that doesn't quite rise to the level of great. I don't know where you would classify that. Um, Cause I guess that's the expectation when you have high level guys and you expect them to be healthy. But for me, considering his history, that would be enormous. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I'll give you my good season. I, I, I put a few things in here, but I have that in there noticeably more healthy and mobile after the injury with improved run blocking. So I, I just want to see him moving around better. And this is qualitatively exclusively. I don't, I don't have a specific metric that I want him to perform to, but just that qualitative thing. Number two has no drop off in per snap effectiveness as a pass blocker for Lamar Jackson. And the two of them are able to play at least 13 games together. So now I've put something on Lamar Jackson and Ronnie Stanley's good season, but you know, life goes on. Um, my third condition is, Penalties don't hold up at the extreme levels. He's a fifth of the league average right now, but he's still better than the league average. So if he if he goes up to 50 or 60% of the league average, it's probably still going to be fine. Um, it clearly is dem demonstrating a, a veteran player who knows how to avoid some very significant potentially drive-stalling errors, and that's what we want out of Ronnie Stanley. Yeah, one thing I wonder about, and we'll get your opinion on this, is when you have a new guy who you're working with, so like left guard, Right. Mm -hmm. We don't know who this is going to be right mm -hmm. now. Um, maybe he's had practice reps with Ben Cleveland in there. Um, this is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done which is music to his ears. Call, click or just stop by. Granger 
for the ones who get it done. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. Maybe even some of the other guys who've been on the team. Obviously, John Simpson is new, um, newer. I think they mm-hmm. brought him over last year on the practice squad at some point late in the season. But they, newer, right, to work. At. I do wonder how that affects things sometimes because if you've got to do more to help that player, it can just be – it could be – you know, physical help, like actually got to do some things body wise to help that player. It could be mental where you're like, hey, Mm -hmm. I know what's going on on this play defensively. I'm probably going to have to set a little bit more inside, hang a little bit more inside. Uh, I might have to get my eyes in there a little bit more, get them off my guy briefly, just check in there real quick to make sure in case I got to help that guy. You know, all of those things. I I do wonder how that might factor into to his play if he if he feels like he has to do more of that. Let's talk through that a little bit because this is an interesting a schematic thing. It is not atypical that there is a guard bubble on one side of the field. If you have the typical one-three alignment, you end up with a with, can end up with a guard bubble on a pass blocking play, where the guard is looking for someone to block, and he'll process usually from the inside out and end with a help block on the table tackle. Start with his right hand if he's the left guard on the center's man on the nose tackle watch for stunts, watch for blitzes, then get to the help block last. Whoever is new at that position going to have a lot of problems with that, potentially. You know, I, Ben Cleveland, it's something I thought he did pretty well at Georgia, but that was at right tag, a right guard is a long time ago. He clearly does not entirely have the trust of the Ravens coaches. Last year, I'll say at least, we'll, we'll see where he is this year. Uh, but the fact that they're already looking at Sala and Simpson and mentioning them before they're mentioning Cleveland in the totem pole of, hey, can you can you list out some players who might play left guard? That to me is not good news. Now, maybe he's trying to send a message to Cleveland. Maybe he's trying to say, hey, it's, it's not your job to lose. It's your job to win if you come in here and work your tail off, but it's not your job to lose. <laughs> you know, kind of thing. So I'm mentioning John Simpson. I'm mentioning this rookie ahead of you, and I'm mentioning this right tackle or this left tackle who couldn't play at all last year as a potential replacement for you at guard. And I, I think that's interesting. But let me get back to the actual schematic point I was making. The left tackle, in most situations, he's never without a dance blocker, a dance partner on a pass play. He's always got some responsibility. What he has to c- concern himself is when he is not going to get help. So if he has to maybe set a little differently, and I think you you kind of said it earlier, alluded to it at least in terms of, needing to 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 correct inside more to make sure that that's not the way he gets beat because he can't trust a Ben Cleveland to come and help him out. I don't think there's I think it's much rarer that that left tackle can peel off an assignment of his own to go help the guard. I think yeah. I I mean I'm not saying it doesn't happen but but I think it's much rarer. Yeah, I would agree. I think that probably comes more from the center than mm-hmm. it would from that left tackle, but I'm just kind of putting my mind, you know, putting myself in the mind of that defensive coordinator, I'm going to try to isolate that guy, whoever he is. Oh, yeah. Right? So I'm going to engage Linderbaum uh, 
however I do that, head up or I'm through through motion, I'm going to cross his face to keep him engaged. Obviously, there's going to be a guy that Stanley has to account for. I want to get that guy one-on-one as much as I can, and I'm going to test him. He may not end up being the weak link, but I'm going to go in because he's the new guy thinking he's the weak link, and we're going to test him and see if we can get him in some situations where he can't get help from either guy and see, you know, see what we can do. So I'm just wondering, does that have a domino effect whether it's Stanley or Linderbaum or both, where both guys are like, hey, we know that they're going to try to do that. What can we do to try to help in those situations? Yeah, I think I think um, it is a particularly scary combination of circumstances for the, excuse me, for the 2023 Ravens, that they will have one, a new left guard who is almost certainly going to be a significantly worse pass blocker than Ben Powers was in 22, because Ben Powers was one of the very best. And, they will still have Linderbaum. Now, it'll be a big guy who plays left guard because they're only choosing from a bunch of absolute behemoths for, for, for that position. But it won't necessarily be a guy who can uh, compensate on that A-gap the way Powers could. So if I'm a defensive coordinator, I'm going to go after the Ravens' left A-gap all day. Yeah. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have people crossing the face from uh, one. I'm going to have people crossing the f- face from that left side three. Uh, and, and I'm going to go, go after Linderbaum's shoulder and I'm going to see what the left guard can do. Yep. And, and not only that, I'm going to work up all my, my blitzes around that. I'm going to work my stunts around that. See if the pickups go well, I'm going to check, I'm going to check Linderbaum. I'm going to check the left guard. I'm going to, I'm going to come from safety. I'm going to come from linebacker if I need to with blitzes that, that, uh, test that particular gap. And we're going to keep Rodney Stanley otherwise engaged with the, with the defensive edge or uh, edge, edge rusher. We'll just call. Yeah. Cause I think for quarterbacks, Obviously, you know, the goal is is to limit pressure as much as possible. But I think if it's coming off the edges mm-hmm. from a little bit of a wider angle, I think that would probably be the preference as opposed Easier to anything to that's with. coming up yeah. in the interior, like right up in your face. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, if I'm a defensive coordinator, that that's what we're going after all day until they show us they can handle it and, and maybe we need to try to attack somewhere else. Yeah. So you and, and the third circumstance that goes with that is Munkin, if Munkin's going to have a much more pass heavy scheme, then that is going to pose an additional need to have pass blocking snaps yeah. that uh, will do this. Something tells me that left guard play could really be a very big determinant if the Ravens are able to go all the way to Monken's desired scheme or maybe even Jackson's desired scheme, or if they have to throttle it back a little bit, keep the offense in third gear run the football where they've been effective anyway for years. And they probably with the personnel they'll even have this year will be, will continue to be very effective doing it. Uh, I, I really, I really wonder if they're going to be able to, to go full Munkin on this offense. It's a good question. I mean, I think that there's some things you can do um, just, you know, talking specifically about the passing concepts to try to mitigate that stuff. I mean, you can, you know, the screen game, obviously we know Monken, you know, that's, that's something that, um, you know, is a big part of what he does, not just the running back slow screen, but a lot of the perimeter stuff, whether it's bubbles or now screens or tunnel screens. I mean, he's got them all. Um, so there are ways to get the ball out of the quarterback's hand um, more quickly. Of course, you got quick game stuff. Um, you got play action where, you know, maybe you're going a little bit more six, seven man protection. Plus you got the ball fake where guys kind of have to read run pass on defense. So you can, you can do some things, I think, to mitigate it. But at some point, there are going to be situations in the game where you got to go straight drop back and, you know, that guy, whoever that person is, is, is going to have to show and prove. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just no way to hide it. 
at some points during game. So, you know, when everything's clicking and you're playing from ahead, hey, great. But there are going to be times where that's not the case. And, uh, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. All right. Let's 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 reel it back in here. Tell me what's a great season for Ronnie Stanley in your mind. Well, I think I talked about the health thing, so I don't know if I can talk about that again. But um, that's, you know, kind of right there at the top of the list. You already talked about the penalties. So obviously keeping those, you know, kind of where they are now, if not a little bit lower. Um, and then, you know, the one thing for me, you, you mentioned it earlier. I don't think it's that big of a deal. And you certainly can speak to it better than me because of the scoring that you do. I think it's just kind of been like a bugaboo for me that, you know, anchoring against bull rush is kind of where he does struggle in pass pro. I think his approach to it is a good approach. I know why he does it the way he does it, because I think that's that's probably the right way, the, the right way to approach it for who he is. You know, I mean, he's not Orlando Brown where he can just sit yeah. on a bull rush and invite it like, yeah, please come into my chest so I can envelop you. <laughs> right. So I get for, for who he is and his body type and the way he plays, why he approaches it that way. I think I'd just like to see him maybe kind of develop maybe just one or two more little tools in the toolbox for how he deals with it other than just to sort of give ground hop back and then try to kind of arch his back and sit down on it I mean that's you know obviously one of the main tools but I think there's a couple other things that you can do in terms of trying to re a lot of that I don't want to get super nerdy about this here but a lot of that is about changing force redirecting force Mm -hmm. um you know, I don't know if you've seen any of uh, Jim McNally's stuff on Twitter, longtime offensive line coach. He's been on Twitter and the guy shoots off videos like nobody's business. <laughs> I want to say he's got like thousands of videos. He's only been on Twitter for like three months. It's crazy. But one of the things that he talks about, and I guess this goes back to um, who's the Colts long time? Howard Mudd, offensive line coach. He used to always say that the fastest way to get beat in pass pro is to set back. He was not a guy who believed in taking, you know, deeper pass sets. He wanted yeah. to take the fight to guys right away, right? Whether it's jump sets, whether it's up kicks, however you want to term it, you know, the, 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 that first strike right mm-hmm. off the snap of the ball. And then maybe you take a kick back, you know, where you're kind of throwing off the timing. It looks like you're going to jump him, but then you, Joe Thomas used to do that all the time. He'd shoot his hand, then take a kick back. You're like, wait a minute, is he jumping me? Oh, no, he's not, he's not jumping me. <laughs> so the guys kind of hesitate a little bit coming out of their stands. Just to maybe employ one or two of those other little tools. It's a great point. I think when all, when your main one that you go to is that kind of give ground, hop back, and, and drop your anchor, that that can be tough because those guys, you know, particularly like Hendrickson and some of these other guys, I don't know that you can survive against them throughout the course of a game if that's your only tool for handling their bull rush. Yeah, it's that's a great point, and in particular, what you're talking about. Be very effective against pass rushers who regularly go to their toolkit for a compound move. They, they have a euro step. They 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 want to go to a spin move and whatever. Your your first move as an offensive line as a left tackle, you, you don't want to disrupt that compound move. So a first strike does that very effectively. You know, if you throw off the guy's timing, you know you're 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 doing it. Believe me, pass rushers have a lot of timing as well that they're having to work through, and the good ones really have an internal clock that that tells them about almost like the way you know how to click a mouse mm-hmm. and you know how, what a double click is, how often those, it's a funny story about this. I, I got to tell it, even though we're 53 minutes in and we still have a player to go here, but uh, they were trying to teach my old boss, who was not a computer guy, how to use a mouse for the first time. And he was having a lot of trouble mastering the double click. 
Mm-hmm. And so you would go click, click. Like this, yep. you know, it's like, no, no, it's click, click. Like that, that's, that's what. Yeah, my mother in law is, is, is like that. There's like a little bit of a pause, yeah. kind of a longer than necessary pause <laughs> yes. in yes. between that second click. And then, you know, there's an overcorrection. And then it's like, click, 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 click. <laughs> and it's like, wait a minute, you only need to click it twice. You just clicked it like six times. So. The, the other one, I, I couldn't get this across to my mother, but, but you know, her, her, she was in the last years of her life using a computer and they had computer classes at the uh, retirement community she was at. And all they taught her in this retirement community was how to cut and paste, basically. It's the most important thing you can do. Cut and paste, you know, just move information around, be able to write things in a different order. You know, you know how important it is because yep. we all use yep. Word a little bit. But when they when she was trying to learn how to cut and paste, she's trying to write down the keys. Okay, let's see. I hit control mm. V or control C and then control V. Mm-hmm. You can't write it down. It is a physical activity. It's yeah. supposed to be that. It's arranged that way in terms of the keys. No, it's control C, move it, control V. Control mm-hmm. C, move cursor, control V. Don't don't try and write it down. She goes, no, that's the way I learn. I have to learn it that way. No, you have to learn it with your fingers. It's like learning to open this doorknob. If I had to teach you how to do that, yeah, I'd say yeah. you grasp it, you turn it. You know, you... <laughs> There's a timing and rhythm, man, to so much yeah. of these things. And to your point about <laughs> pass rush and, and pass blocking, there's definitely a timing and rhythm to that. And I'm not saying he's got to do that a ton throughout the course of a game. You do it once or twice, particularly early on, that guy doesn't know when it's coming the next time. Sure. So now that's another thing that he's got to think about. He's going his advanced scouting mind. Yeah. He's going into the game with his plan for what he wants to do with certain rushes and certain situations, certain situations. And you show him something that he didn't anticipate. Now he's like, Oh, wait a minute. Now he's doing that. Okay. What am I, what's my counter to that? So the chess, you know, the chess match, you know, continues. All right, let me finish with a great season because we got to get this going, buddy. Right. Um, I, I have the following. I have better health lets him play 16-plus regular season games with increased per-snap productivity in the run game and more total pass-blocking snaps in which to excel. So I'm not, I'm not expecting an increase in pass-blocking productivity. Per-snap productivity with Jackson for 16-plus games would be terrific. Um, an effective Ravens offense puts him back in regular Pro Bowl discussion. Ring of Honor candidacy gets back on track. And there is no question about his 2024 contract value. I think there's likely to be no question anyway, but certainly we don't want there to be any question (laughs) if he he has a great season. Sounds like a great season to me. He checks all those boxes. I don't know what else you could call it. There you go. All right, my friend, we ready to move on and talk some Daryl Worley here? Yeah, and see, I don't feel so bad because I'm like, are we going to spend a ton of time on Daryl Worley? So I don't feel so bad about going okay. a little heavy on Rob. Let's let's see. We're at 56 minutes. We'll just take a, a, a reading of the clock, Michael, because you and I can find our own rabbit holes to step into. <laughs> uh, but Daryl Worley now, six years of accrued service time over seven seasons. He is not an unexperienced guy. 55 career starts. He'll mm-hmm. still just be 28 in February of 23 or just turned 28 in February of 23. So he's not an ancient player. Um, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, he was a pretty fantastic prospect when he came out of West Virginia. Uh, but his, I don't know if you remember this at the time, he had a very bad 40 time, uh, 464, I think, coming mm-hmm. out of school. People thought he'd be a corner. Then they kind of had thought of him as a safety. He certainly has that, that very long-armed build, but also you know, probably looks more like a corner than a safety. Uh, it was still drafted number 77 overall uh, at that point. Yeah, it's, you know, what's interesting about that is we actually had a discussion about that on the deep cover podcast that I did. And we had Denard on and we were looking at some of um, 
we're looking at the secondary and, and some of the undrafted guys. That's a little bit different with those guys because, you know, the reasons why they go undrafted. But even if you look at, you know, Rocky Sin is a guy that they brought in. These are burners at corner mm-hmm. now. I think, you know, with shifting to Mike McDonald's philosophy, uh, particularly with how he wants to play coverages, obviously I'm not going to sit here and say you don't need corners to be fast. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But maybe like high end speed is not so much of a premium in the style that they want to play. And I'm tying this back into Worley because I think about the 2022 Bengals game he played mm-hmm. in where he actually played relatively well. I know Chase got him for that one touchdown, but it was a goal ball, you know, jump ball in the end zone situation. That's what Chase does to people. But overall, I thought he played pretty well. But then you contrast that to the 2021 Bengals game, the other one we just talked about where, you know, so many guys were out in the secondary. Different system, right? And obviously different guys around him too. He did not have Marcus Williams and Marlon Humphrey and all these other guys. So I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, you know, understate that. But I think that system just wasn't a great fit for Worley. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think a little bit more zone based, a little bit more off coverage, I think it's a little bit of a better fit for him. I, I was going to ask you, does it really come down to zone and off coverage, eyes in the backfield, as opposed to, I mean, Worley has the size and length to be and certain to, to be a, a badass press corner if you wanted to be. But then he's got a you know, he's got a trail at that point. That would be a, be a little difficult if he's off ball. And Marcus Peters is the king of this. I mean, he loves to look into the backfield. He loves for the other parts of the defense to be creating the pressure that cause a ball to be thrown in his direction when he knows he can do something about it. Yeah. And uh, if if you can get any kind of fast pressure uh, on a player, he knows a blitz is coming. He is licking his lips. Looking yep. for looking for the football, uh, and I wonder if 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 that isn't some of what they see in Daryl Worley. Probably not the ball skills you could point to, yeah. uh, that that Marcus Williams, uh, Marcus uh, uh, Peters has certainly. But what do you think? Yeah, I mean, again, I I keep mentioning these games. You, you talk about that Bengals game last year where he played. You know, had a couple PBUs in that game. Had a big mm-hmm. hit on T Higgins on a route where he's kind of like apexing. He's kind of like between. T Higgins, who I think was the outside receiver. And there was another like inside sort of seam route. So he's kind of like in the middle of those and he peels off on T on that outside route and just lights him up, mm-hmm. separates him from the ball. I think that there's something about that. And then you can look at it a couple of different ways. So you could look at it kind of what you were alluding to, where you got a guy who maybe doesn't have like top end speed, but you know, he's, he's got good size. You say, well, if he's going to get his hands and get in the wide receivers, you know, he's going to be able to compensate. Uh, a little bit for that lack of speed, which I think there's truth to that. But then when you got to open up and turn and run, it's trouble. Uh, even in a press situation, you get your hands on them, but for whatever reason, it, the jam's not effective or they're able to beat it. Um, now they're creating instant separation, right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and vertical opportunity. And that, that's, that's a trouble that, that, that can be trouble when you, you can't really turn and run mm-hmm. from off. I think what happens is you're a little softer on underneath stuff, obviously, because again, the speed factors back in, you're not necessarily, maybe is quick twitch and don't have like super acceleration to kind of drive and um, break up the ball on some of that short underneath stuff. So you're a little bit softer there, but intermediate stuff and particularly stuff deeper down the field, which, you know, I mean, this is the NFL that we're in right now. I mean, these guys want to throw the ball down the field. Um, you know, they, they started to adjust, I would say a little bit last year when you're seeing kind of prevalence of more of the too high you know, coverage shell, the Fangio type stuff. Now guys are starting to realize, hey, we got to keep it underneath a little bit more. But um, I think you can look at that speed thing both ways, right? In both, you know, sort of coverage philosophy. So I think with 
him, it gives him more time, which uh, that, that space gives him more time to kind of see things. Right. And I think he's got pretty good instincts um, and is able to kind of adjust on that intermediate and deeper stuff. But the short stuff, yeah, you're going to be a little soft on some of that. And you're just going to have to come up and make tackles. Well, you know, the, the week 18 game versus Cincinnati, you referenced early where he had a great game. I mean, yeah. it was, it was, he was targeted 10 times. So they were picking on him, but it was only 52 yards. I mean, so, you know, first of all, 5.2 yards per corner per uh, target for your corners. Sign me up for that any day. Because a lot of variance in those plays, there's some incomplete passes, there's a risk interception, all that. Um, it was just a, it was just a, a, a top game for him. Uh, played 61 snaps in total in that game too, so it's not like he was, uh, he was just uh, getting a little bit of activity. The other thing I really liked about how the Ravens were able to play against the Bengals is that pretty much all season they limited the Bengals to throwing a lot of short passes to the outside. They, they were fairly uh, hesitant to throw over the deep middle and let Marcus Williams um, impact the game uh, and let, you know, other, other safeties, whether, whether it was at the time stone on the back end, he, I don't think stone actually started a game against him. I think it was Marcus Williams, all three games actually, because mm-hmm. he was still around in the first game and then he was back for the, for the end of the season. And so it would have been uh, Chuck Clark, um, yeah. another guy they might've had some, some fear of, but at least he'll be in the right position, but they really, their offense didn't look the same. It looked like a, like, you know, a, a really scared offense trying to throw a lot of short passes like that. And uh, you know, if the, if the Ravens can do that to the Cincinnati Bengals, they're going to be generally pretty successful because they're, they're a great downhill tackling team. Uh, and when you throw passes like that, even though, you know, the, the offenses try to escape and, and make a big play and it's extension of the running game, this more than any other type of play, it creates second man opportunities on the football. So you have you, you probably have a lower interception rate to start with, but you have a much higher fumble rate. Yeah, yeah when you think about those games, I, that's a great point that you make. When you think about those games, when the Bengals were making plays down the field, which, you know, weren't, you know, it wasn't a real frequent thing. It was typically an extended play situation. Mm-hmm. You know, Joe Burrow's, you know, getting out of a sack or he's getting out of the pocket and he's expending the play. I mean, Denard and I talked about this a lot last year. I feel like almost every week, except for like the early part of the season. But I think you could kind of see McDonald, you know, sort of, you know, adjusting throughout the season, which I think was really good. Uh, we always talked about keeping the lid on the cookie jar. Like mm-hmm. that was the thing, right? <laughs> he was going to keep the lid on the cookie jar as he sort of learned more about the guys that he had and what their strengths were and what kinds of coverages and what kind of calls really suit them, right? As opposed to, I think early on, it was a little bit more of, well, here's the stuff that I want to do. I think these things are going to be good in these situations. All right, well, that sounds great. But when the guys are out there on the field and they're the ones who are playing it and it's not having the effect that you thought it would have, you got to adjust and say, hey, I got to do the things that they actually do the best, even if that's not the stuff going into the game that I thought we'd be the best at. That doesn't matter. It's about Mm -hmm. what they can do, not about what you what you think is the best to do. And I think he kind of adjusted that. And then guys learn the scheme. I don't want to make it all about McDonald. I mean, obviously, I think they had players who were learning the scheme and probably had some mental errors, their fair share of mental er- errors earlier on, but the more they played together and the more they played in the scheme, um, they kind of cut down on that. But yeah, with the Bengals, man, they just seem to have a really good approach to how they want to attack them, particularly in coverage. They seem to be willing to, I don't want to say sacrifice, that's too strong of a word, but to say, hey, if you're going to maybe pop a couple of runs, we're okay with that. We'll still come up and tackle the ball. They're not going to be like, you know, 40, 50 yard runs. They might be like a 10 yard run here or there, um, but we're willing to trade off 
keeping that lid on the cookie jar, which might make us a little softer against the run in some situations, but you're not going to be able to throw the ball over our head because that's the quickest way that you're going to lose against them. And that's what they want to do. So that's always interesting to me is how long can those quarterbacks be patient? Can they have the patience to dink and dunk all game long, not force it, not throw into, you know, areas they shouldn't throw into and make mistakes. I'll take that as defensive court. If you can do, if, if you're willing to do that, then let's see where we end up at the end of the game. Right. But a lot of these guys, that's just not how they're wired, man. That's how they get to the NFL. They're not wired to do that. They want to take shots. I think there's more, um, mistake risk also that we're not taking into account there. I think that, that, yeah, you throw the ball down the field, there is probably greater interception risk, but there's tip balls that occur on these short passes to the outside. Your edge rushers can get their hands up. They can, they could do things. And we saw a lot of that from the Ravens this past year in general, JPP, I think had two consecutive might've been against the Bengals. Yeah. He had, no, um, might not have been, but either, either way, whoever it was against, he had two, two plays in a row where he had a batted pass and, uh, you know, Braddock Washington had six Braddock, batted yeah. passes on the season. So yep. uh, I have to look back, by the way, I think that might be the Ravens record, but I'll have to look back and see what Rob Burnett was in his prime and, and see if he ever was, uh, was up there in that range. Don't think about Brody, you know, off, off, on the hoof as the guy yeah. who's going to be batting a lot of passes, but he had a real knack for it. Yeah. And you got Calais Campbell, you got Brent Urban, you got all these people who, who certainly have the size and yet uh, he, he's very good at timing it up. Let's let's talk a little bit about Worley in terms of 2023. Um, you know, he comes in with this very crowded cornerback room that has very unknown quantity and quality or quality of those players. Um, you know, we, it, it, Stevens, JAD, Kelly, Mullen, the guys from out there outside the organization, Worley, and there's one other guy that I'm forgetting because I think there might be you six. Say Pepe? I I did not say Pepe because he's in the slot. I'm talking about okay. the outside corner oh, yeah, group. Okay. The, so I think there'll be the number three to number five outside corner roles are not yet determined. And there's some factors in there that are working to, to indicate it one way. Mullen has a guaranteed contract. Mm-hmm. So it's not quite a sunk cost because you have to actually replace him on the 51 with a guy who's earning a similar amount. So I don't think that that he would be released easily. They might still do it, but I don't think he'll be released easily. Um, and then Stevens, they moved back to safety and JAD, you know, who knows? And Kelly really did not play well in college. I don't know how quickly he's going to adapt to the NFL game. So, you know, we're, we're down to not a lot of choices. And the one guy that I really think the Ravens love is Daryl Worley. Seems yeah. to have found a home here. Yeah. He's, he's been, he wasn't the guy who kept getting released and brought yes. back. Oh yeah. Okay. He, he was the guy. 18 okay. times or something last year. Yeah. <laughs> So he was the guy. Now I know a lot of that was kind of the the you know roster you know sort of gymnastics that you you had to do to kind of juggle you know numbers and stuff like that. But the fact that they kept doing it with him, I yep. mean, you could juggle those, you could make those same kind of you know adjustments with somebody else. But the fact that they did it with him and kept bringing him back, I think you're right. I think that they do like him. But man, when you you talk about that uncertainty, I mean, it's just I didn't realize how young they were in the secondary. Kayvon Seymour, I think, is the oldest dude. I think he's 29. And I think you mentioned Worley's 28. I think Rocky Sin's 27. Everybody else is like 26, 25 or under. <laughs> it's a bunch of young dudes. That's uh, fairly young. Yeah, I mean, they're not dealing with a bunch of rookies. They they have some uh, – J.A.D. Kelly and Pepe are all first or second year. Yeah, they just haven't played a lot. Yeah. Some yeah, of the guys yeah. that have been here, they just they just haven't played very much. I mean, Rocky obviously has played you know a fair amount. He's been around – Worley and Seymour, different capacities, 
think Worley played a little bit more early on in his career. Yeah, Worley has 55 career starts, so he's yeah. he's no spring chicken from that perspective. So yeah, but yeah, I think he's a guy that in this system, right? I might have felt a little bit differently mm-hmm. about this if Wink was still the DC, but in Mike McDonald's defense, I mean. I think you could be worse, you know, if you got to go through a game or stretch a game with him out there, you know, at outside corner. I mean, you know, it's, it's probably not ideal, ideal, but, you know, I think I think you could do worse if he's if he's a deaf guy for you. Mm-hmm. And that that really is the question is, can you can you live? Let's say your number three corner plays six games a year effectively and your number four corner only plays two games a year and your number five corner, you hope never sees the field, but he might still, yeah. you know. Uh, the question is, do you want Worley to be your six game guy or your two game guy? And, and I don't know with the current set of other, you know, the, the only guy I'd, I'd really want for six games instead of two ahead of him is Stevens. Yeah. And he's the guy and, and they've, you know, they've decided he's at safety or apparently I hope there's some flexibility to move him back there. And yet on the same thing, I kind of hope for his sake, he gets to play one position because he's starting to get like Camelai Correa and Michael Orr and, all the other guys away who've been moved yeah. around to their own detriment. It gets hard after a certain point. I mean, you know, there's a tipping point for it, right? It's all, it's all fine and well to talk about versatility, but at a certain point you get diminishing returns, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, the guys that can truly, truly do a bunch of different things and do them at a high level, they're rare, you know? Yeah. They're star players. That. Hamilton and Yonder yeah. are really the, t- and, and you know what? I'll give you, I'll give you a third one and uh, I'll give you four. Hamilton, Yanda, Adelis Thomas, because you can put that dude anywhere on the field. He was just such a superstar. And and the, the other one who did it, I think, with less talent than the other guys is JJ. Mm, like Jared yeah. Johnson was a terrific guy in terms of being able to move inside or outside linebacker. You need him on the edge, that's fine. You need him inside linebacker, he could do that too. Yeah. Um, but there, there, there have not been a lot of guys in, in, in Ravens history who could do it. And the ones who are, are, are generally either in the ring of honor or pretty damn close to it. Yeah, I, I think... That going back to your question, I, I agree. I think I'd want Worley to probably be the two game guy, mm-hmm. and and maybe it's Stevens who's the six game guy, or in a more sort of even optimistic approach, maybe it's JAD, maybe it's Trayvon Mullen. But the, these are unknowns. You know, you've seen Stevens at outside corner. I think you have a feel for what he is out there a little bit, mm-hmm. um, and and you feel like okay, we can we can we can get through a stretch of games with that. Um, but JAD, you know, that's kind of the the big unknown for me because didn't get a chance to play a whole lot last year. You know, what with I, I think you've mentioned it before. I I don't know what else you would call it other than a benching in yep. the Patriots game, <laughs> and then you know an injury sort of develops out of nowhere. Um, you know, had some issues there in that game for sure. Didn't look quite as bad in the Miami game, except for that, you know, kind of really obvious bust, whether that's on him or not. I know there's been a lot of debate back and forth about who that was on. It's on his side of the the one up the left side of the field. Yeah. Yeah. It's on his side. of the field. Yeah. That was, I I think that was uh, Hamilton in the wrong place, but that's okay. But made a couple of plays in that game too. Mm -hmm. So, you know, an athletic guy too, but injuries have been the bugaboo going back to Alabama. You know, it's not like it just started in the NFL. He, he dealt with some stuff there at Alabama too. So, um, I guess the one thing you can say about Worley is he's available, and that's that's pretty important. Yeah, pretty damn important. Well, let's let's move on and talk about what's a good season and a great season for Daryl Worley. How about you start us off with a good? Oh man, is this going to be too low of a bar? He's got to make the team. 
Uh, <laughs> it's a pretty important part of it. Uh, I don't know. You know, I know you're a big odds guy. Uh, I don't know if you've thought about odds on that or not. You probably like his chances considering kind of some of the uncertainty that you just talked about, but um, you just don't know, you know, you never know in this situation. So uh, I throw that in there. I guess that could cut across both categories, but I think, you know, obviously making, making the roster. Um, I don't know if that means, you know, practice squad, I guess I might put that in the good great might be like on the actual, you know, 53, which I don't even know if that's workable. Um, but yeah, I'll go with that. I'll say making the team and being probably on that practice squad roster and maybe getting a couple of call-ups, um, you know, obviously he's going to play some special teams. You hope that he doesn't necessarily have to go into a game due to injury, but I'll, I'll throw that in my good category. Okay, so here's my good category. I it's actually kind of a, a, a twist on what you said because I think uh, one of the things he gives you is roster flexibility by being a veteran who you can resign. So I think he'll be initially cut okay. for for the veteran roster flexibility gets you from you know 53 to 57 players maybe that you have on your roster, including guys you can stash on injured reserve. By the way, with the news today, the Ravens look like they're gonna they're gonna want to use some of that hmm. in terms of of having some midseason replacements that they like. I think he'll be re-signed prior to, to week one. And again, this is on the 60th percentile possible outcomes for me. That's the way I did it. And I would expect him to be active for most games at that percentile. I think that the, the chance is 40% or more that Daryl Worley is one of the five active cornerbacks for the for most of the games for the season. I think he'll contribute on special teams. The Ravens will consider him one of their viable backup corners. Uh, and he may or may not see the field. As a backup corner, it'd obviously be better for the Ravens if he didn't. But maybe he takes a place of a Seymour in terms of being a good enough special teams player um, and and providing more at outside corner as the backup uh, that, that they can really rely on. That's my good season. You're so much better at this than me. <laughs> Whenever we get into these, I have such a hard time because I try. I actually do think about it because I know where we're going to do it. I just I'm just not as I'm, I'm not as quantitative issues. Michael, you do you, do you, buddy. You do you. <laughs> you know mine. It's going to be a lot more sort of amorphous and, well, it could be this, it could be that. What's your great season? All right. So I guess, man, now I, now I feel like I should have put this in my good season, but I'm just going to say, hey, if he uh, is active for, I'm going to say have 60% of the game. Okay. I go 60% of the games and I was trying to look up his snap counts on special teams right now. Cause I kind of wanted to see how much he played on special teams last year. Cause then when I'm he, starting when to he think was active. Yeah. I'll, I'll bring yeah. it up. Oh, okay. Yeah. What we got here? 20% of the special team snaps looks like 88 snaps according to pro football reference. I know different places might have it different. Um, Cause I was trying to use that as kind of my barometer for what that, that number was going to be. Cause I'm like, well, if he played a bunch of special teams last year, then maybe being active for 60% of the games is not that high of a bar. Uh, but he didn't, didn't play a ton uh, on special teams last year, but could be different this year. So yeah, I'll keep it at that. I'll keep it 60%. It looks like he was only on, no, this is not right. I'm looking at something. Oh no, no, no. He had some time with Detroit last year. That's what it was. Mm. So in 20 in 21, I'm not looking at 22. That's the problem. Okay, so in 22, yeah, he was on all four of the primary special teams units. So he's definitely a core player uh, with, with 88 snaps. So even though he was only active for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, it looks like eight games, he would have been playing on all four of those units pretty much every time they were out there, I assume. 
And he's yeah. also on the on the field goal block team, which okay. is that's the unusual one that that some people are on and some people aren't because you typically have some defensive linemen who wouldn't be on any other special teams unit. Yeah, I wonder if he's one of those guys who he thinks, you know, that those edge rush guys, I guess. Maybe they think he's got a little ability. Could be, could could be the Anthony Mitchell guy that you drop off the line of scrimmage to make yeah. sure you're, yeah. So anyway, I, I'll, I'll give you my great season here. Is uh, the what I said for the good season, plus he plays at a league average level when the need arises for 150 plus snaps at corner. So I think we're gonna we're gonna see him on special teams. I actually think he'll probably be active for most of the games. Um, your target of you know 10.8 games, or actually, I'm sorry, it'd be 10.2 games. Would it? 17 game season times times 60 percent. But that's still, um, I, I, I even think that might be a little low. Yeah. I I, I kind of would want more more than that from him. But uh, but I think if he's if he's going to be valuable to the Ravens at corner and be their number four or number five corner at the worst then he probably ends up being a special teams guy they're relying on week after week uh, because the, 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 the guys they deactivate uh, typically are the last guy at certain position groups, the last running back. They might, the last defensive lineman, the last offensive lineman for sure is a guy you typically see um, deactivated. So I think Worley would be in a group where he's got too much value on special teams to be set and would be too close to the top of the podium pole on the outside at corner uh, to not be active either. Yeah, I think I'm hoping one of the the younger guys, what what Greg Roman used to always say, grabs the brass ring. That's probably what go. I'm trying to factor in there, but that's probably being pretty optimistic. All right, Michael, I I, I can't even tell you how much I appreciate the quality of these conversations. Uh, your knowledge of football is at such a high level, and you know one of the things about Michael, folks don't realize, is just how much effort he's gone to self-train and I don't, I, I, it's, it's not like you self-train yourself at coding, but he's gone out and sought the knowledge. He, obviously you hear him talking about uh, a lot of individual coaches and what they think. Well, that's because he's going out and he's watching their videos. And he's also done a lot of work with the scouting Academy materials to get that. I, I, did you ever get all the way through that or did you, did... I got through, let's see. I want to say if you do the whole thing, it's all eight position groups. I want to say I did six. Okay. Well, still eight. outstanding. Yeah. And and it shows every time we have a discussion with all the knowledge of terminology and responsibility and whatnot by position group. And I, I really appreciate that. I learn something from you every single show. We we every time we have a discussion um, about uh, about the game. So I really appreciate that. And then it, you 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 may not know this, but it's worth taking a look back in the film study log of things to look at the Michael Crawford and Josh Mustyko episode where they came on and showed Michael's charting and Josh's. A querying analytics system. It's absolutely outstanding what they did to chart the Ravens' run plays and categorize them all. And and then uh, that was that was Michael and Josh. Then brought an a analytics tool to it that allows you to play around with that, eliminate certain plays, and and choose what you want to include in your in your uh, uh, observation group. And it's just outstanding what the two of them uh, put together. Anyway, I'm still impressed by that. And of of analytics projects that i've ever been adjacent to i was never part of that but but i was happy to have you come on and vet it on my show but of, of analytics projects that i've ever been adjacent to that probably would be the example i would show someone who said i want to get into analytics and i want to understand how to do a good study so i just really appreciate you guys coming on and, and showing that to me high praise and very kind words i could absolutely could not have done that without josh and you know we had um a lot of 
optimism for what we wanted that to be. I, I think it, it it was good. It was very good. But man, if, if I mean, we could talk about it some other time, some of the other things that we were hoping to do and planning on doing and had talked about doing and, you know, just, you know, you've got life and other thing going on. Sure. Other, we never really got to it, but, you know, essentially the thought was, Hey, we'd like to have basically like on a very small level, obviously not to the same extent as what I'm about to say, but basically like our own, um, you know, video slash analytics department, like an mm -hmm. NFL team would have, you know, because at some at one point we were thinking, hey, let's not limit this to just the Ravens. Let's do this for the entire league. Let's do this for every game. Yeah. Like it got crazy at one point. And there were ways where we were able to where we were probably able to get the film and cut it up in automated fashions. Josh had kind of developed that. So that was going to speed up things quite a bit, but you still got to do the charting. The charting um, would be an amazing, amazing yeah. amount of effort. But I wanted to get a team of charters. That was the That's idea. I was certainly wasn't going to try to do it myself. So we'd reached out to some people and had meetings. Like we were trying and, uh, you know, things kind of just never were able to get off the, get off the ground on that. But still, it was really fun. Uh, charted run game since 2018 up until last year. So, uh, don't know what I'm going to do this year, but you know, it was great. You know, I, 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 people who know me or follow me on Twitter know I have a fondness for Greg Roman. It's not going to change. It's not going away. I'm not, I'm not apologizing for that <laughs> because I think there was a lot of good to the stuff that he did. So it was really fun to kind of dig into his offense. Uh, I know I shared with you, we had some of the old 49ers materials, which there was a lot of carryover from that stuff to what they were still doing with the Ravens. So you were able to kind of get some insight into what they were doing and learn it a little bit more. Um, I actually have tried to teach myself coding. I have not had the success with that. Tried to learn Python <laughs> and R uh, that I've had learning. Uh, I don't want to make it sound like I've, I've been successful learning football. I know a minuscule amount, um, but you know, I'm, I'm happy that I've been able to learn what I've learned. Well, Mike, always a pleasure to have you on. Tell folks where they can talk football with you online. Uh, still on Twitter. Haven't, haven't left the bird app yet and gone to three. <laughs> so at Abukari, A-B-U-K-A-R-I, uh, still doing the deep cover, uh, podcast with Chris Aguilera and Carrie Stevenson actually just released an episode today, uh, kind of a training camp preview where we go through offense and defense, uh, rosters, position group by position group, Denard Melton, who I do the fire zone show with, which is strictly defense. He, you know, joined us for that. So we'll be cranking all of those up as the season gets rolling and, um, yeah, that's that's pretty much where you can find me. All right. Make sure you give those podcasts a try. Michael's involved. You know they're good. Uh, I've been a guest on maybe both of them, but definitely one of them before and, and really enjoyed both. the discussion. They're 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 all good football people who are who are fun to talk to. Other folks out there, if you'd like to be on a film study short, hit me up with a DM on Twitter. Opportunities are getting a little thinner with camp about to begin and obviously a number of other reporting elements of, of that uh, coming to the front with all the changes that occur. And uh, I'll still try and find time, maybe for one short per week. So go ahead and give me a, a DM and I'll, I'll respond to it very quickly. Michael, thanks again for coming on. Appreciate you having me, Ken. It was a blast. And we'll talk to you next time on Film Study. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done 
which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.